Well, good morning again. If you'll uh, open your Bibles to the first chapter of Acts. We'll be there. It's good to have you here today with us. I'm going to introduce the book of Acts to you this morning. And our goal will be to sort of travel for the remainder of the summer through the early portion of Acts um, with an attention, our attention on Pentecost. I will say I love this book of the Bible. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And with maybe the exception of romance, Acts has everything you would ever want in a story. It's full of action. The, the book of Acts is full of action. People are hunted down in Acts. There's mobs and riots. There's imprisonments, earthquakes, terrible storms at sea. There's times of despair and fear. There's times of zeal and fury. There's serpent attacks. People are stoned, struck dead, raised up. I mean, it's full. There are, there's shipwrecks. There's intrigue. There's bold speeches from people for whom it's going to cost them everything. And it's true. It's a story that's full of the supernatural. Everywhere you look, there's supernatural happening. There's spirit fire, there are sorcerers, there's healing, blinding lights, voices from above. In the story, there's demonic power. Somebody is teleported in this story. God strikes some dead and raises some back to life. He empowers others to speak in strange languages. He gives others prophecy. Some he fills with knowledge of the scriptures at just the right time. And it's true. I love Acts because not only does it have action, but it is a coherent, real story and it's a story that fits in the context of a broader story. So it's a good story that fits snugly inside of a better story. It has a beginning that's connected to the end. It has, it's full of deeper truths. It has named characters and it has normal people. It has a plot. It has a goal. It has the force of of challenge that extends beyond the story itself. It's not one that you can close up and put away as though it wasn't speaking to you. It speaks to us. And it's true. I love this story because it's true and it has force to it. It has power in it. It's not simply a tale that's confined sort of to historic characters that have died. Or a fairy tale that was nice to think about but doesn't really possess any implications. It's an active story. In fact, the history of the church has largely been shaped and punctuated by people who embraced the story of Acts as a real and true story with force and power. All through our church history, I'm going to give you an example of several of them. In the second century, I'll just walk chronologically, in the 
And there's many more that I could say, but here's some examples. In the second century, there was a man named Polycarp. He's one of the first martyrs of the Lord that we have real record of. Polycarp was 84 when he was hauled into the arena of the Romans. 84. He was what you would call the Bishop of Smyrna. He had grown up in the ministry of the Apostle John and had taken on some of the sort of elder ministry in the areas of the churches that John had shepherded. And at 84 years old, the proconsul hauls him into the stadium and pleads with him. Nobody wants to kill an an 84-year-old man. Pleads with him, just just repent of your faith in Christ and kneel to Caesar, and this will all be good. Here's some of the words that come out of uh, the account of witnesses to Polycarp's death. It says, the proconsul said to him, being Polycarp, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you unless you repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. 84 years old. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. The story, by the way, goes on to say that they tried to light the fire and were unable. And those who witnessed it said the smoke from the cinders that wouldn't light smelled like frankincense. They eventually had to stab Polycarp to kill him. It's the force of a book like Acts that extends to an 84-year-old man who boldly witnesses for Jesus Christ. In the third century AD in Carthage in North Africa, they, they, there was a young lady, her name was Perpetua. She was married and pregnant with a child and preparing to get baptized. Her father pleaded with her that she would not be baptized because she, he knew that the moment she was baptized, she'd be arrested and thrown in prison and martyred. She comes out of the baptismal waters. A few days later is arrested. She gives birth to her child in prison. After a little period of weaning her child, they haul her into the arena and martyr her. It's the force of a book like Acts that propels a person like that to do that. It's a force, the force of a book like Acts that takes a young man named Patricius who was kidnapped and hauled away to the, the island of Ireland when he was a boy as a slave. And he's a slave in Ireland when the Lord meets him one night and arranges for him to escape the island. He comes back to mainland Europe, studies the word of God, learns about God, and goes back to Ireland for the rest of his life teaching the people of Ireland about Jesus. It's books like Acts that do this. It's book like Acts that take people like Francis of Assisi and Benedict and Martin Luther and cause them to turn into the church and reform it and give their lives so that the bride of Christ might be seen holy. It's the book of Acts that motivates people like George Whitfield to evangelize the colonies. It gives people like 
innumerable, nameless, circuit-riding pauper preachers who will ride on their horse throughout the frontier of this country, preaching Sunday after Sunday in tiny little distant churches, planting the seeds of faith. This is not just a history book. It's a book like Acts that motivates someone like Gladys Alwood or Lottie Moon to go to China when no one was going to China. When parts of China weren't even mapped yet. Lottie Moon at the turn of the 20th century was in China during one of its most difficult times. It was being attacked by Japan. There was massive famine. She gave... She started giving, seeing all the famine, seeing people die around her of starvation. She started to give of her own money and of her own food so that when the missionary network that sent Lottie Moon found her, she weighed 50 pounds and she did not survive the trip home. It's a force of a book like Acts that does this. On September 11th, 2001, You may remember there were two young ladies in Afghanistan that were taken captive. One's name was Heather Mercer and the other lady's name was Dana Curry. They were in their 20s. They were, at the time of 9-11, they were ministering to Muslim women among the Taliban. Who does that? Who does that? They arrested them, they charged them, then they began to smuggle them around as hostages. And they were eventually rescued. They were repatriated back to the United States. And what do you think they did? They both individually on their own turned around and went back into the Middle East to minister for Jesus Christ among Muslim women. This is not a history book. It's one thing to be true. It's another thing to have power. The book of Acts is the force, produces a force, a power, a suggestive challenge to the church that takes uh, since 12 to Puerto Rico, since 8 and 30 to Exfuge, since 4 to Burkina Faso, sends many of you carefully and delicately to your own places of work and into your own circles to sort of sow the seeds of faith among other people's lives. Because it is a true story with implications that extend beyond historic dead heroes. Do you actually think that Lottie Moon gave the last food she had because she was motivated by the example of a dead hero? or by a living spirit. This book of Acts has commonly been called the Acts of the Apostles, which I consider to be a very poor name. And I think if the apostles were present, they would bristle at the notion. I do not think it is the Acts of the Apostles. The apostles are all dead. And yet, the church has been shaped 
and, and just challenged throughout 2,000 years by the teachings of this book, by the examples of this book. If, the, if it is the acts of the apostles, I think it's relegated to history. But if it's something else, which I think it is, if it's something so much more than that, then that explains the fact that it is still alive. In fact, this would be the thought I'd like to leave you with, at least an introduction, is the, this book of Acts is not descriptive of a past era. It is indicative of the present. It is a book that is indicative of the present era. So let's, let's begin to look at it. I'm going to read the first three verses of, of Acts. They serve as a bit of a summary. And we'll see where it takes us. Here's, here's what it reads. This is Luke writing. So Luke wrote Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So it's part, we see here that Acts is part of a broader narrative. It's part two and a larger story. The Gospel of Luke being part one, Acts being part two. We also see that it it was addressed to a man named Theophilus. We don't know much about that, except that both Luke and Acts are addressed to the same here, reader. And verses one through three serve to summarize, essentially summarize the Gospel of Luke or the life of Christ. In fact, the very first verse is essentially the summary of the gospel of Luke. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. Listen to those words. I've dealt with all that Jesus began, began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. Does that sound interesting to you? The word began catches me. All that Jesus began to do until the day he was ascended into heaven. I thought that's all that Jesus did do. Paul, Luke says it's all that he began to do. Part two of his letter to Theophilus, so part two of Luke's story, describes all of part one, the gospel of Luke, as that which Jesus began to do and teach. Just take, take that in for a second. The whole gospel of Luke is that which Jesus began to do and teach. So what does that make Acts? Verses 2 and 3 describe a a, a bridge, a transitional bridge. It's this tiny period of about 40 days in which we transition from one era to another era. We're transitioning from the era in which Jesus is bodily present 
in the world to the era in which Jesus is not bodily present in the world. He's spiritually present in the world. And verses 2 and 3 sort of bridge that. The very end of the book of Luke has a very brief transition that matches this. They have this tiny overlay that describes this, this period of time where uh, Luke writes things like 40 days before, after rising but before ascending. There's orders given through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. There's convincing proofs of his resurrection shown. And there's clear teaching about the kingdom of God. Before we leave the summary, I just I want to hone in on this thought. That we should note that in Luke's perspective, all of the gospel of Luke is what Jesus began to do and teach. And part two, the book of Acts, the whole book of Acts is going to transpire with Jesus not here. So just put those, add those two together. The book of Luke is what he began to do. The book of Acts, he's not present. He's ascended. He's going to ascend in the sixth verse, six, seven, and eight. So for the other 28 chapters of this book of Acts, he's not here. And yet Luke says, the gospel of Luke is just what Jesus began to do. Let's look at uh, four and five. It provides us a little bit of insight as to how to think about this. This is what it's written. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for, for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, this is... This is the, if, if I were going to name this book, I would call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit um, or the Acts of the Spirit of Jesus or the rest of the Acts of Jesus through us. Okay, something like that. Uh, but what you see here is that, that, that hint, right? Gospel of Luke is all that Jesus began to do and teach. The Gospel of Acts is going to be what people will do with the Spirit of God in them. And it's one of these little phrases, by the way. And he grabs onto John. When he says John baptized with water, but, but the promise of the Father is that you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit, he's grabbing onto an experience that he recorded in the Gospel of Luke, by the way. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, when challenged on who he is, says, I baptize with water, but one who's coming after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. This is, by the way, this is a, an aside, but I, these are the sorts of asides that I just, I love so much. I find little areas of scripture like this to be wonderfully triune. There are parts of the, there are little triune moments that never really make the theology books on the Trinity, okay? They, they don't have any notoriety, but they have all the triune ambiguity that I just love about the Lord. So just note here, I just, I want to, I want us all together to get confused into who's doing what. In verse 4, we're supposed to wait for the promise of the Father. Okay, so apparently the Father promised that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
Okay? So Father promised they'd be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But when I look back to Luke 3, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but one's coming who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then Paul is later on going to call the Holy Spirit Christ in you, the hope of glory. <laughs> so who is it? Right? Is it God baptizing us in the Holy Spirit? Is it Jesus baptizing us in the Holy Spirit? Or is it, are we being baptized to have Christ in us? This, these, these tiny little phrases that just so, they so, are so comfortably relaxed about who it is we're talking about. That sometimes to me are the most trying places in the Bible. The book of Revelation does this all the time. Luke, the ministry that Jesus began when he was bodily present on earth. Acts, the ministry that Jesus continues until now. Spiritually present, resident in the bodies of believers. Let's read this last paragraph here, 6 through 11. And uh, I want to read the whole thing because in my mind it kind of starts, well... I'll just read it. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I find this is, is an interesting picture. Uh, now, the apex of this paragraph is Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That is, that's the apex. That's the mountain, right? It's the mountain peak of this paragraph. It's the thesis of the book of Acts. All of Acts sort of harkens back to this. It foretells how the story is going to work. But on either side of it, what, what we see are some, what I would call very regular type of people responses to the presence and the absence of Jesus. Okay? Right in the front, and we know that for 40 days Jesus has been preparing them. For 40 days he's commanded them in the Holy, he's taught them through the Holy Spirit. For 40 days, he's described the mysteries of the kingdom to him, and he's told them, I'm going to leave. Okay, For 40 days, he's done that, since his resurrection, before his ascension. And right as he's about to leave, what do they ask him? So is it over yet? They essentially say that. Like, so when's it ending? When's it over? Jesus just told them that the promise of the Father is that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. 
We know in the other gospels that they're told, they are told that they're going to do many more things without him than they did with him through the gift of the Holy Spirit. They're told, they're forecasted in front of them this vibrant life of power through the Holy Spirit. And what's their question? Well, when are you coming back? When is it over? I find that is so regular. Like, I've had these thoughts. Like, the moment you're a Christian, you're ready for Jesus to come again. Not before, right? But now I'm in. When's he coming? When's he coming? It's this, this interest. When's he coming? As though this life that you and I have, this epic, we would call the church age, whatever you want to call it, the period of time when Jesus left bodily before the period of time where he returns bodily, whatever this hiatus, we should not even call it a hiatus. This is the point. This period of time, we act as though we're waiting. We're not waiting, we're commissioned. We're engaged. We act as though the gospel of Luke, Jesus coming to earth and ministering and doing and teaching and dying on the cross, that that. That his work is finished. No, it just began. His work just began there. Now, I understand. I understand the finished nature of it, the tearing of the, of, of the curtain and the destruction of the grave and the conquering of death. There is significant, significant things that Jesus finished, significant work that he finished for the church in order that the church might be able to do the work of God. But when's he coming? I think there's us in this, a sense as though we sort of hold out, just try to do, we try to make the best with the life we've been given now. We try to just kind of trundle along with whatever he's given us now, you know. But when Jesus comes back, that's really the next thing. That's the next thing we're waiting for. That's not the next thing. You're the next thing. We're the next thing. The book of Acts is the door opening to the next thing. Just think how this is accord with Scripture, the broader story of Scripture, okay? So if you want to take this and sort of say, where else would this kind of fit in the rest of the Bible, the broader story, where else would it fit nicely so we could understand it? You would have to go back to uh, the Exodus out of Egypt, Okay, the work of God to save his people with the Passover lamb out of Egypt. He saves them, and what does he do? He brings them to a mountain and for 40 days gives them a new law. Does that sound familiar? Right, for 40 days he's teaching. So there's this massive overlay here of the sort of a better Moses, right? Jesus is a better Moses, and he comes and he gives a better covenant. Uh, because he's a better Moses and he's done better work and he's, he's a better lamb and he's all those things. And so they have this new hope. And that part is, we might say, that's finished. Okay, the time of the mountain is finished. Does that mean it's all finished? No, that means, if you look at the old story, that means that the journey of Israel begins. The life of Israel begins. The, the rest of the Old Testament begins to get written. They go to their promised land. They secure their promised land. From that point on, they're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. That's Isaiah. 
Isaiah 49. It's not enough that I've saved you. I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles, which, by the way, is going to be quoted in this book twice. Make you a light to the Gentiles. There was the vast history of Israel that God had given them a covenant for so that the real story would unfold. Getting to the mountain was just the beginning. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is just the beginning. It's his work in the Spirit. That is the real story that we're engaged with. The end, it ends the same way this paragraph began, right? The first, they're like, well, Lord, are you going to come? When are you going to fix this? Is it done yet? Do I have to wait? How about now? You done yet? Still doing it? Are we there yet? That's verse 6. And then in, after the, at the ascension in verse 9 and 10, Jesus is rising in the ascension. And this is, I think this is such a funny scene. He's rising in the ascension, and they're just gazing at him, leaving, kind of like arms down. And that's what you do. We would all have done this. They're not doing anything we wouldn't have done. When someone gets lifted up in a cloud to heaven, you watch. Right? It's not boring. It's neat. So you're watching it. And he just keeps going away, and he keeps going away like a boat in the distance. Like, can I still see him? Is he waving? Like, is he looking back? And they're waiting. It's like they're watching, waiting for something to happen. Their whole experience, their whole experience has been the bodily Jesus does stuff. The bodily Jesus does stuff. My life is connected to Jesus next to me doing stuff. And he's leaving. He's turning into a dot on the horizon. And these angels go, hey, what are you looking at? I mean, the angels, I I just think it's funny what they say. Men of Galilee, what are you doing standing and looking into heaven? Like, it's what anybody would do. It's, It's almost as though they punctuate them. They shake them. They jar them out of their stupor. That is not the future. He's leaving, and you're going to get the Spirit. You're going to get the Spirit. The church age is not a, in the meanwhile, apostrophe while we wait for the return of Jesus. When Jesus said he's going to prepare a place for us, it's not that it's just taking a long time. This is purposeful. That's what Jesus began to do and teach. This is what Jesus is doing and teaching. Through his Holy Spirit, Paul calls it Christ in us, the hope of glory. I'll close with this thought. There's, I, I actually had this brief conversation yesterday and it, it, it seemed to fit. Um, there's all sorts of studies that are coming out right now about how, despite the fact that countries like the United States are so developed and so refined, and this, the, despite the fact that the average family in the United States has more money and more better health care and better access to education and other tools than ever before, uh, that um, Americans do not appear as happy as you would therefore expect them to be. In fact, we've 
we find a rise in anxiety, a rise in depression, a rise in suicide, a rise in the spirit of hopelessness, a disconnection from reality. All of these things on the rise in a country that is preeminently equipped for happiness. And it doesn't even matter what the studies say. You know it and I know it. By our own experiences, our own anecdote validates this. We are not meaninglessly waiting for the next thing to happen. God has sent his spirit to be in us, to make us part of his kingdom, to continue to do what he did and taught until he returns. And that matters. And that matters. And that matters to, that matters to us and that matters to people who right now are outside of the love of Christ and don't have meaning and don't have purpose and don't have joy and don't have satisfaction and don't have a sense of direction. This matters. Nothing matters as much as the kingdom of God. And that's, that's what God's about right now. That's what Acts is about. That's what this present age is about. And that's it's one of my favorite stories. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as we begin to open the book of Acts, I pray that we'd be fully open to seeking to fathom what the phrase Holy Spirit in us means. I pray, Lord, that to a person here that we would uh, we'd be able to offer you some sort of prayer to say, Lord, I'm, I'm open to understanding that more. I'm, make me attentive to your spirit in me. Make, help me to understand the movement of your spirit in me. Lord, give me ears to hear the voice of your spirit in me, Lord. Because we recognize it's Christ in us. And Lord, not only for us, but for your great name so that, so that this world might see that all that Jesus did and taught when he was here was just the beginning, but that so much good has been done through Jesus working out his will through us. Lord, we pray that for ourselves. We pray that for those who are yet to meet the Lord. Lord, we pray that we would make good use of this time you've given us. All of this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.